Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, my name's Tom, and this is my wife Hoku right here, and my son Elias sitting over here. Raise your hands so I can see you guys. Uh, it's good to be back here at Crossroads. Um, Hoku and I serve with a missions organization known as Youth of the Mission, and we were sent out by Crossroads. It was 20 years ago this past uh, July, I believe, uh, when we were sent out. Uh, so it's always good to come back here to our home church and, and to be with you all. And uh, our time in YWAM has been um, full of challenges and full of amazing things and, and seeing ways that God has blessed us. Uh, our YWAM base, where we're at currently, um, where we've been for the last 20 years, is in Maui, Hawaii. And YWAM originally planted the ministry there in those islands because we saw it as a strategic stepping stone from um, North America into the um, nations of the Pacific and Asia. And so it's, it's a really an amazing gathering place of people from you know, many different nations, and we're able to send people to the nations with that area as a launching pad. And, uh, but our base is just one of 1,100 bases around the world. And um, right now we're blessed. We have about 50 staff with us right now, about 40 students that come through um, that are here with us uh, currently. I'm going through our different programs that we have. We have a, a program known as the Discipleship Training School, which is really focused on someone's own personal relationship with the Lord, but also then how to take those things and uh, make God known, whether that is through evangelism, whether that is through discipleship, whether that is through mercy ministries. Uh, but in a sense, it's an introduction to, to missions. And then we have a secondary school, which is more focused on the scriptures and just trying to get a good foundation for one's faith. And we recently started a school of worship, just recognizing the incredible impact that uh, worship has um, in our own lives, but also in just doing spiritual warfare and paving the way for what the Lord's doing in His kingdom. And so, um, yeah, it's just it's encouraging, and it's a blessing to be a part of that. Um, but that's not what I'm here. We're having an open house tomorrow night, if you want to know more. Just, on, just wanting to give the message, and I'm honored to be here. I'm so thankful that we've been given the opportunity. And uh, just by um, way of introduction to even my message, what I felt like the Lord wanted me to share this morning. Uh, about three years ago, we took our firstborn son, Timothy. He's not with us right now. He's in college. Well, we drove him from uh, here. We were visiting family. We went from here. We drove him to Virginia where he's going to college. He's in his fourth year right now. And uh, this was, this was um, three years ago. And when we dropped him off, the school where he's attending is only about an hour or so drive from Washington, D.C. So we spent a lot of time um, wa um, touring the city while we were there, just kind of getting him settled in before he went to college. And while we were there, we, there was a lot of monuments we noticed in the city. So I think we have a slide of just some, you know, some of the snapshots we took. Um, the city was just full of, whether they're monuments in stone or out of bronze, but things meant to commemorate significant individuals, significant people uh, in the life of this nation. Um, you know, certain battles, you've got, you know, the memorials to the Vietnam War, to World War II, and so on. Famous presidents, Martin Luther King Jr., the city was full of those markers, those, I don't know, memorials to help us remember pivotal people and events in the life of the nation. Well, one of the things that we did while we were there is we also toured the Smithsonian. And the Smithsonian had a special exhibit that summer, uh, and the, the whole focus was on the year 1968, because the Smithsonian was saying that the year 1968 was one of the pivotal years um, in recent American history. All right, and I think a lot of people have been saying, even in recent months, that the year 2020 might be put in the same category 
we'll know in the future, but 2020 is probably going to be another one of those significant years. But the Smithsonian was focused on this year, okay? And they're saying that 1968 was a turning point in so many ways. It was a year of turmoil. It was a year, um, you know, just, just a lot happening. And here's some of the slogans that we saw, you know, on, on big banners while we were there. You know, that 1968 was like a knife blade. It was the year um, that separated the past from the future. Many people saw that as the turning point. And depending on what people's perspectives were, some people saw that as a good thing and some saw that as a bad thing. But many people agreed, it didn't matter what their perspective was, that 1968 was one of those key years that shaped a generation. A year that shattered America was another, another uh, headline. Uh, the year that still reverberates the American mind. Right? Um, there was just so much happening. And so I thought, all right, what, as we were there taking a look at this memorial and at this exhibit in the Smithsonian, I just want to share some of the events, you know, what are they talking about? What was so significant about that year? So just to kind of go through a few things about that pivotal year. It was a leap year. Uh, that was also the year of 1968. This is when Apollo 8 entered orbit around the moon. All right, so that was very significant for American history, world history. We actually went to the moon, circled around it. Um, Richard Nixon won the presidential election that year. Uh, this was the year that Boeing 747 debuted. Okay, um, and it's been used ever since. Hot Wheels toy cars debuted in 1968. Uh, the original Planet of the Apes movie came out that year. Um, some of us remember that. Um, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood debuted that year. The original Hawaii Five-O TV show came out that year. Um, it's also the year that the Civil Rights Act was signed okay, by Lyndon Johnson. Um, also, you know, iconic movies like 2001, very strange movie, but very influential movie, I guess, in the, in the world of cinema, right? But mostly, 1968 was known as a turbulent year, okay? That was the year that the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl, all right? And for people like me, that would be seen as a turbulent year. Um, other people, maybe that was a good thing, but you know, that, was, that was a significant thing, right? Um, but beyond that, beyond, you know, things like the Super Bowl, um, there were a lot of turbulent things that were happening. Um, this was when Congress repealed the requirement to back the, uh, the U.S. currency with gold. So this is a year that the U.S. went off the gold standard, and, um, you know, some economists are saying, hey, we're, we're starting to feel the effects of that. Um, the Vietnam War was fully in effect. There were protests and there were violence among student radicals in many places across the country. Uh, we had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. We had the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Um, the Soviet Union had invaded Czechoslovakia that year. There was a lot happening in 1968. And as we're going through this museum, I remember just kind of being surprised. I'm like, wow, this was a lot of things happened. Things I was familiar with, things I was not familiar with, but I was surprised how much happened that one year. But the Smithsonian didn't mention the one thing that, to me, personally, was the most significant about that year, because that was the year that I was born, and they didn't say anything about it. it was, there was nothing there, right? Um, it was just blank when it came to anything about me, okay? Um, but again, I had to remember they were focused on the nation as a whole, right? But as we're thinking about even the key events of that year, whether we're talking about 1968 or we're talking about key events, um, I want to focus this morning... Um, couple of objectives. I want to talk about something that uh, I learned decades ago um, through a teaching of a guy named Ray Vonderland, but he's talking about standing stones, right? Standing stones. And uh, if you see in this picture here, um, these are standing stones in, uh, near a town called Gezer, Israel. 
And what this was is this is a practice that happened in Old Testament times where they would set up pillars, just like these ones, um, or a pile of rocks, something like that. But they're always meant to be a memorial to something that was significant in that particular society's life, whether it was, you know, a key event, um, you know, maybe they won a battle there, or that's when, you know, a certain leader became, you know, became the king, whatever it would be, they had this cultural practice known as setting up standing stones. And we see that um, in different ways to the Scripture. So I want to take a look at a few passages uh, where we see evidence of this culturally in the Scriptures, but then try to make a connection for us today. All right? And as we take a look at these, uh, I want us to be thinking, although we're doing a quick historical overview of, of certain events in Scriptures where we see this issue of standing stones coming through, be thinking though also, you know, what are the key pivotal events, uh, people, situations that we've had in our lives that might be our, our version of standing stones, right? So um, one of them goes back to the life of Joseph um, in Genesis. And uh, for Joseph, there was a very important place. And so in Genesis chapter 28, uh, you might remember this story. This is when he was running away from his, uh, his brother Esau. He was on his journey to go hang out with family. Um, and he thought he probably would never come back to the promised land. Um, and so while he was in distress and while he was, uh, you know, on this journey, this is the night when the heavens opened up and he saw a staircase of angels descending and ascending and he heard the voice of God and, the God, you know, the voice of God was reaffirming to him promises that had been made to him um, and to his, you know, his, his father and his grandfather. And so picking it up in, uh, in verse 15, or let's see, this would be verse 15, is that right? Um, and so just picking it up here. Here's what the promise was, and here's what happened next. So this is God speaking, and he says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until all that I have done um, has... I'm sorry, till all, until I have done what I have promised to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at, at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I will go and will give me Bread and uh, bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again into my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a tenth. And so you see in the story, Jacob is setting up this standing stone to remember. This is where he had the, you know he saw this dream, he saw this this very supernatural encounter. And this is an encouraging thing for him because he went forward with this promise and he didn't want to forget it, so he set up a standing stone in this place. All right. Several chapters later, Genesis chapter 35, we see uh, him coming back to this. And in verse, um, chapter 35, verse 9, it says that God appeared to Jacob again when he came from uh, this place called uh, Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and he said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful, multiply, and a nation and a company of nations shall come forth from you, and kings shall come from your own body, 
In the land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Okay, coming back to this, this key place, but this key place, this geographical location, was significant in his life. Right? And we see this emphasis, uh, if you're kind of paying attention to the overarching story in the Old Testament, that God wants his people to remember key events, key places, key um, individuals. Okay? Uh, we see this um, in other places, such as when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. Okay? Um, and that's where we see the Ten Commandments. And God gave to them, you know, the people of Israel, the whole covenant, and made promises about how he was going to continue after bringing them out of Egypt, how he was going to send them into the promised land. And at, after that whole um, event and that encounter and the revelation of God in the mountaintop, Moses built 12 standing stones at the foot of Mount Sinai. And he meant it as a memorial so that future generations, if they came through here, would remember this is where God spoke. This is where God revealed not just the nation of Israel, but the people of earth, his holy law. Right. And as we go through the story of Moses, their time in the wilderness, um, I did one count. I found 19 times while they're in the wilderness, God said to the people of Israel, remember, remember. Remember, 19 times that word comes up. And he's telling them to remember what God has done, primarily, but occasionally he also wants them to remember so that they can learn from their mistakes. But he wants them to remember their history. And then when they go through struggles in the future, they can look back and realize, oh, God delivered us here. God spoke with us there. And on and on and on and on. And so Moses was, you know, had a huge um, understanding of we've got to connect these people to their spiritual history. Coming into the life of Joshua, we see something similar. Um, after he comes out of the, uh, crosses through the Jordan River, um, after they, they pass through, they're coming in the promised land for the first time. And then we're told, and uh, I'll start reading here from verse 5, Joshua chapter 4, verse 5. Joshua said before the people of Israel, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan River were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan River were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And I like that line in there. It says, pile up these stones right next to where God had actually parted the water of the Jordan River. And God says, the reason is that when future generations come along and say, Grandpa, what's that pile of stones doing there? What does this mean to you? Then they're to say, well, this is the very spot where God supernaturally parted the Jordan River and our whole nation came through and inherited the land. And there's something very significant about that, and you can just imagine the grandchild and later, later generations like, oh, that really happened? That wasn't just a story? This is where it really happened. Right? And so, think about this. We have examples of standing stones, although we don't use that term very often, but we have examples of that in our own life. Okay? I can think of, you know, uh, in my baptism was a standing stone. That was a key event in my life. Um, 
The wedding ring that I wear is a standing stone. It's a memorial to a covenant that I made with my wife. And it's always there to remind me of those promises, okay, and of that covenant that I've entered into. Um, we could think of things that we do regularly, like communion, taking the Lord's Supper. We are having a memorial of what Christ has done so that we can never forget the core foundational truths of the gospel and who Jesus is, right? We have those things that are, you know, we, we work them into our life, we work them into our culture, we work them into our, our even our worship and our fellowship um, as a congregation. But when you think about standing stones, you know, what are those pivotal moments, those key people, those key places, um, those key events that you've had in your own walk with the Lord, right? And, um, just to kind of help us think about this, I want to share what some of mine are because I realize that as I've, I've walked with people, I've seen so many people go through challenges. And one thing I try to encourage people, I'm, I'm walking with them, trying to give them counsel, is I say, hey, reflect back on what God's done with you up to this point. Right? And for us, our standing stones, they might be certain individuals who had a big impact in our life. They might be uh, a season in our life. And those seasons could be mountaintop experiences where everything was amazing and you saw all this breakthrough. But oftentimes our standing stone moments are also those times spent in the valley where the Lord brought us to a place of brokenness. And out of that place of brokenness, we were poor in spirit, which ends up being one of the fundamental principles of the kingdom of God given in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? But oftentimes we don't like what brought us there, but oftentimes those seasons we recognize, wow, God really used this. So just some of the standing stones that I've had in my life. Um, growing up in a Christian family, um, I was very thankful for that. With my p- parents who honored the Lord, who, who raised us uh, to love the Lord. Um, and in that, my mom re- led me to Jesus when I was about 11 years old, back in 1979. And she, she introduced me to relationship with Jesus. Right? It went from just being knowing about God to knowing Him personally. Um, that's a very, very key moment for me, January 14th, 1979. That's a standing stone moment in my life. I think of in the years following as a young Christian and a young man having some traumatic injuries, right? One was you know, at a sporting event, you know, getting a softball you know, hit my face, another time broke my arm. Uh, but I just remember those points when from, the, from a young person's mind, that the pain and the fear of getting an injury and recognizing that the only one I really could appeal to was the Lord, and all of a sudden, the reality of who God is went deeper in my life because I saw how He got me through these difficult, these difficult times. Um, I think of another moment. Uh, I was probably 12 or 13. I got lost in the woods, and I had no idea where to go, and I recognized the sun will be down in about in half an hour, and if I don't find my way back to where I need to go, this is going to be a bad thing. And I just remember praying, said, God, I have no idea where to go, I know I'm supposed to stay still because that's what they told me growing up, but if I stay still, I'm going to be here all night. I don't know what to do. And I had a strong sense. I, I can't explain it, but it was just in the depth of my spirit, and I just felt like God said, turn around and walk the opposite direction that you're walking in. So I turned around, and I began to walk, and I'm like, it's, nothing looks familiar. Um, there were some bushes in front of me. I pulled the bushes aside, and there was the parking lot, and there was my family, right? And I'm thinking, Wow, God does speak. I can hear his voice. Okay? It wasn't an audible voice, but for me as a young man, the reality that he speaks to us became my reality. Right? Um, that's a pivotal moment for me. Um, I think about as I, uh, as I begin to get through my high school years, I begin to feel a calling into ministry. I felt the calling to missions. 
Uh, my sister, Grace, um, she'd spoken to me and introduced me to this organization called Youth of Mission and encouraged me. She says, hey, if you're not sure what's next, at least go do that. Go do this thing called the DTS, and it'll give you six months to be involved in missions and to pray about what's next. Well, that was a pivotal moment in my life because I've been with that organization for over 25 years. Right? What turned out to be a six-month uh, you know, initial trial run at the suggestion of my sister. That was a key event, the way the Lord used her to turn me in a certain direction. And, and she's here today, so <laughs> there's my sister back there. Um, that was a key event in my life. I remember as I went to Youth of Mission, as I went to this program, I was 18 years old, I turned 19 while I was there, went to some different countries. Some of those mountaintop experiences I had with the Lord, I will never forget them, where uh, my prayer time went from being just petitions to God to feeling conversational. That was a key part of my spiritual heritage um, and my, my spiritual walk that I, I learned um, in my late teens. One of the more significant ones in my life, though, was when I came back from Youth of Mission and I returned here to Minnesota. And my time while I had been with Youth of Mission was the best way to summarize it is it felt like a six-month spiritual high, mountaintop feeling close to the Lord, feeling His presence. I loved every time I went to worship. I would feel a tangible sense of His presence in worship. When I prayed, it felt conversational. It was, a, it was just amazing. I thought, wow, this is what the Christian walk is like. I, I had no idea it was this amazing and this rich. And that mountaintop experience lasted for three months after I returned back here to Minnesota from where I'd been serving at YWAM. And the, the best way I could describe what happened next, it's as if God completely just turned everything off. What I mean by that is I sometimes use the illustration that, you know, if my spiritual life is compared to, you know, my physical self being a house, being a building, but what empowers it, the life of the Holy Spirit, is electricity that's empowering and making everything work. It's as if God went to the basement, found the main breaker, and turned the whole thing off and locked it up because I felt nothing, and it was almost instant. It went from, you know, feeling the tangible presence of the Lord in worship times to feeling nothing in those very same worship times and with the same people leading. Hearing messages from the front, I just, I didn't, I understood it in my head. It wasn't connecting with my heart anymore. My prayer times went from feeling conversational to feeling, feeling like I was talking to a wall. And at the front end of this, I remember I had this thought. I had this thought that, well, this will go away in a week or so because everybody goes through valleys, right? Um, everybody goes through, you know, they say, oh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But about a year into this of feeling nothing, I remember somebody brought that metaphor up. They said, you know, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. And I said, yeah, or you could say it's always darkest before it goes totally black, that was kind of my, my mindset at the time. Um, someone else said that, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm like, you know, it doesn't feel like a tunnel. It feels more like a cul-de-sac. And it's just, there's, nothing is changing. And over the months, the discouragement went deeper and deeper and deeper. I remember thinking, you know, do I, you know, is this real even? And I thought, am I in sin? So I would search my heart. And anything I could think of that I'd done wrong, I'd repent. And I'd expect the clouds to part and the hallelujah chorus began and nothing happened. And probably a year or so into this, by the way, it lasted about a year and a half of feeling virtually nothing, hearing nothing. 
one thing I want to really say to my, my spiritual mentors is they had encouraged me um, and had really stressed the importance of my walk with the Lord being a discipline and not being led purely by emotion. So what that meant for me is even though I wasn't feeling the presence of the Lord, I'm giving credit to my mentors, they said, but carve that time out of your schedule anyway to be with Him. Right? Um, now, I didn't like those times because they were dry, but I still did them. And I'm just I'm trying to give credit to the people that discipled me. Well, there was one particular time where I was complaining. Um, I was complaining to the Lord about this dry season that I had been in for so very long. And it was like there was just a little bit of the clouds rolled back and there was just a little ray of light coming through because I recognized that some of the thoughts that I had in my heart were not coming from me. This was that still small voice of the Lord that I hadn't heard in so very long. And it came in the form of a few questions. And so these questions were basically, Tom, do you believe that I'm with you? I'm like, well, and I give a Sunday school answer. Yes, I believe that you're with me. I'm not feeling it. I started, I wanted to complain. I feel like he just said, shh, be quiet. Okay. So you believe that I'm with you. Well, why do you believe that I'm with you if you don't feel me being with you? And I thought about it, and what came to my mind was, well, your word says in Hebrews 13, 5, your word says, you promised me, Lord, that you would never leave me or forsake me. So I know according to your word, even though I'm not sensing your presence, you promised that you'd be here. The third question was this, if you believe that I'm with you and you believe me because I promised that I would never leave you and forsake you, then Tom, what's your problem? And that little ray of light closed up and that was the end of the conversation. That was not how I wanted it to go. I was very frustrated with that. I'm like, There's, what, what's that supposed to mean? Is there more? There was no more. And I began to reflect on that and I remember thinking that the Lord was bringing me through what many people called the dark night of the soul. Because I had made an idol out of my emotions and out of tangible experiences. For me personally, this was just an error I'd made. I was seeking experiences of God and they were more important to me than God himself. Right? And it took about a year and a half for me to see this, of being in that dry place. Okay? And so I, after that, I remember I just had a deeper sense, a deeper appreciation of the word. And, and I still enjoy those mountaintop experiences. And eventually they did, they did start coming back. But that year and a half of feeling nothing, to me, is a standing stone in my life, right? where I decided I'm not going to allow the enemy to victimize me by how I feel, or how much sleep I've had, or what's going on with me physically or circumstantially. And I knew, God knew that he needed to prepare me in that way, because in the future, eventually, um, uh, after that dry period ended, I went to college um, in Chicago, when I was done at that time in Chicago. I went back to an amazing ministry, but it was a ministry that was going through some very difficult seasons. A lot of bad things were happening. And I quickly got put in leadership um, in a sort of a, a crisis uh, time. I don't need to go into the details on that. And I don't remember ever feeling so discouraged as I was at that time. And I thought, hey, I'd be back with Christians who were serving the Lord, and we were very dysfunctional at the time. Well, in the midst of that, I came back here to visit family. And uh, I remember I uh, went back to my parents' house, had a few weeks, I think it was at Christmas time. And it hit me that I 
physically did not need to go back to this horrible situation that I'd come from, that I was taking a break from. Even on the way to the airport, my dad was driving me to the airport, and I remember thinking, I don't have to get on that plane. If I stayed here, I could just call these folks up and say, hey, I'm done. I resign. I'll find something else to do back here at home. <coughs> Excuse me. And I remember praying about it and saying, Lord, I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. Can I stay? And the only thing I felt he was saying was, what did I tell you to do? Commit to this place for three years. I was about a year into it. I remember thinking, but I could still stay. I remember going to the airport. I remember sitting, waiting for my flight to be called. And I was sitting there waiting for my aisle to be called. And I remember thinking, I still don't have to go. I can stay here. But I felt compelled to stand up and go anyway. Um, and as I, you know, give the flight attendant, you know, my ticket, I'm crying. She's like, what is wrong with this guy? You know, uh, but I remember I looked at the jetway heading toward the plane. There was no one else there. For some reason, there was a space. It was empty. It was just me, jetway, and the plane. I thought, I can still go back. I still, I don't have to get on this plane. I can turn around and catch my dad before he leaves the airport. But I remember saying, okay, God, I'm just going to trust you. And every step I took down the jetway, it was like the burden got less and less and less with every step. And the reason why I tell that story, every time I get in a jetway, I think about that day. Because a jetway for me is now a symbol of trusting the Lord. Okay? When I went back, the situation was difficult for a while. But I had this confidence that God was in it, even though I didn't feel it. Okay? Well... Um, one of the blessings that came for me going back and being faithful going on a jetway is I ended up starting a relationship to the woman I got married to. So I'm so thankful that the Lord pushed me down that jetway, right? So, um, and that's another standing stone moment, maybe a story for another time. Um, but after we got married, we moved back here to Minnesota. I was going to Bethel for a while. But then the Lord began to call us back to YWAM, back into ministry. And uh, I remember thinking there's, you know, so many stories we could say about even the calling that Hoku and I had to leave Minnesota and head back into missions. One thing, I don't have the time to go into the details of that story. It's an amazing story. But I wrote those things down. The guidance I wrote down. Okay, why do you think God's calling us this way? I wrote it down. I'm so glad I wrote it down because later on when things got difficult, I would look back over my journal when I was having doubts. Did I make the right decision? Am I really in the Lord's will? I would read the journal and I'm like, nope. I'm reading about my standing stones. They were in print. And I'm like, this is so real. And I'd been taught at a previous church I'd went to, never doubt in the dark what God said when it was light. And when it was light, here's what God said. Here's what he did. I wrote it down. And that would encourage me to keep going, to keep pressing on. Right? And so, uh, even as I think about all this, just one more standing stone moment. I remember it was um, after Hokunai, um, we'd had our first son, Timothy. Um, we we're praying about what's next. We felt the Lord was calling us back. It was right around the time when Crossroads was celebrating their 100th year anniversary as a church. And uh, during that time, there was two banners. I can't remember exactly where they were, but they were hanging um, behind me here. And one of these big banners said, Truth of the Word. And the other one said, Power of the Holy Spirit. I remember sitting over here looking at those banners in a worship time. And I feel like the Lord just began to speak to me. And he's like, I feel like he was saying, sometimes Christians choose one side to the exclusion of the other. 
I feel like you're saying, my heart is, I want people to be anchored in the truth of the word and filled with the life and the power of the Holy Spirit. Those banners became a standing stone moment, and when I went back into ministry, everything I think of now goes back to, are we embracing the fullness of the kingdom of God? Are we anchored in His truth? Are we pursuing the life and the power of the Holy Spirit? I got that from a worship time in this room that has steered the foundation of the ministry that Hoko and I are part of now. We're always going back. We want to, we want to teach both of these things. We want to disciple. What does it mean to be anchored in the truth of the Word? What does it mean to be Spirit-led? We have to do both because they're not opposites. They go like this. Okay? I glean that from my time here. And so I could go on and on and on with this, but I want us to consider as we come to a close, what are your standing stones? I'm sure we all have our own, right? Um, you know, one thing, I don't have time to go into this for the sake of uh, where we're at here, but there's a, another aspect of it where Peter picks up on this um, in, in one of his letters. And he talks about this idea of being living stones. And he says this, as you come to him, meaning as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What he's saying here is live life so that others take notice. We have the standing stones in our lives, but we are meant to be like a living standing stone that other people see what's going on in our life and they ask, what's going on there? What's happening? And oftentimes, for the non-believer or maybe even a, you know, a, a struggling believer, it comes from seeing how we respond to adversity, how we get through those difficult seasons. Right? And uh, we're to live life so that others take notice. And so what I'd like to leave us with here is I just want to close in prayer. Um, so we might need to skip a couple slides, but I just kind of want to get to the end. I want a couple questions. And the first one is this. What are you facing now? What challenges are you facing now? Okay, we in Wyoming, we've had so many challenges with the season of COVID, and I'm sure every one of you have your own stories of struggle this last year, whether it's been at work, whether it's been even the dynamics of trying to meet together as a church, whatever it is. But what are the challenges you're facing now? I'd like to encourage you, meditate on God's character. Meditate on his promises. Remember what your standing stones are. Okay. Another question is, you know, where and how does God want you to be a living stone okay, in the place that he has you right now? Right. And if I could just leave something with you is uh, if you've not made a, a, a taken time in your life to think about the standing stone moments in your own walk with the Lord, to write those things down. If you have a physical object, that can represent that to you. But let the Lord speak to you because when you face the difficulties that you might be in now or that you're going to face next year, it's like those little kids at the time of Joshua. What's this about? Well, this is where God delivered us. And if he delivered us in part of the Jordan River, he can do it again in this next issue, in this next, cha this next challenge. So, Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your truth. And we thank you that you are worthy. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. And, Lord, even as uh, just sharing my experiences and just tr trying to share these principles from your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you remind us of the standing stone moments in our lives, those key people, events, moments, interactions with you. And, Lord, help us never to doubt in the dark what you told us and showed us when it was light. 
I ask that you would encourage us, remind us of those things. And Lord, use that as a source to help us break through any discouragements or lies that might come to the enemy and help us to press forward in faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.